This sermon, A Hard Life is No Match for a Good God, was preached on Sunday, June 25th by Pastor Derek Overstreet at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read the psalm in its entirety, Psalm 22. Familiar words in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn, that he has done it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, we now look to your word. You are our God. We are your people in Christ Jesus. And your spirit is here with us. And so will you work? Will you work the work that you have already worked that is our hope in life and death? Do this in us. Lord, I pray that as a preacher, as a pastor, in such a difficult text, I would be mindful of the real and difficult hardships represented in this room. But that I would be even more mindful of the God who stands over them all. And that for everyone in this room who no doubt is mindful of their own hardships will leave here more mindful of their glorious Lord and Savior. Use your word to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of years ago, before my family moved to Tucson, we were part of the church in, up in Gilbert. And I had a gentleman who was in my community group, and he and his family, they were going through a serious hardship. It was, it was serious. It was prolonged. And it was pervasive in the sense that it affected deeply everyone in his family. We had been walking with him through this for a number of years, and yet there was still no end in sight. And I remember meeting him one Saturday morning for coffee. He was struggling. And so I said, hey, let's just go and let's walk around the strip mall. <laughs> and so we did. We, we left Starbucks, and we just began to walk. And I just said, tell me. Tell me. Pour your heart out. And I just listened. And when he was done, I, I, I stopped and I said, what's keeping you right now? What's holding you? You're here. 
You're talking. What's getting you up in the morning right now? And he said these words that have ever since been with me. I've applied them in my life. and I've applied them in my counseling. He said this. All I have left is God. Who he is and what he has done. I have one thing right now in my life. And that is all that is true about God. Have you ever been there? I think we all have. If you haven't, you will. So just see this morning is God preparing you. Maybe you're there right now. But if you are, I'm glad you're here. Because this morning, we are going to circle the strip mall with David. We're going to take a walk around the shopping center with the psalmist. And here's what we're going to learn. Life is hard, but God is good, and Jesus is the proof. Life is hard, but God is good, and Jesus is the proof. No matter how hard your life is today, it is no match for the good God that you belong to in Christ. A very simple outline. Two points this morning. Life is hard. God is good. So let's look at the first point. Life is hard. As we look at this psalm, we, we have some ideas, but we can't say for certain what the source of David's suffering was in Psalm 22. Here's what we do know. This is a troubled man. Notice how he starts out in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words represent the loneliest place on the planet. Unlike Psalm 8, where David is at the height of his relationship with God, in Psalm 22, we find David at the opposite end of that spectrum. David is in deep despair. In his mind, his situation has become so big, it is bigger than life itself, and it seems to him that God is nowhere to be found. As we will see, his enemies are everywhere to be found. His troubles are everywhere to be found. His hurt is everywhere to be found. But it would seem, according to verse 1, that God is nowhere to be found in the mind of David. Now listen, to be sure, David, this is not a lapse, of, a lapse in his faith. We will, we will see that in a moment. But but we can look at verse 1 and we can, we can clearly see David's heart hurts. It hurts so much that he feels as if God, notice how he addresses God, not the God, 
But my God, it would seem that his God has abandoned him. Listen to David as he articulates his feelings. We're just going to just run down through here. Notice verse 6. He is scorned and despised. Verses 7 and 8. He is mocked and insulted. Verses 12 through 13 and verse 16. He talks about his enemies. They viciously attack him. No mercy. In verse 14, he, he explains, he feels like his entire life is just being poured out like water. Verse 14 and 17, he says, I just, life is like my bones are out of joint. They don't work. The pain pulses through my entire body. Verse 14, he says, and my heart just melts like wax. Verse 15, he says, I, I have no more strength. It's dried up. Verse 16, he says, his hands and feet are pierced. In verse 18, he says, his clothes are divided up and gambled for. I'm not sure what that, what emotion or feeling or sense of despair that is communicating. But I think David sums where he's at up in verse 6. Notice what he says. I am a worm, not a man. In Scripture, a worm is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for judgment and destruction. So deep is David's anguish here, he doesn't even feel human. <laughs> Destruction is his lot. Life is hard. Just ask David. If you're not familiar with David's life, let me give you a couple examples. In 2 Samuel 12, we learn that David's adultery with Bathsheba cost him his young son. Perhaps he was thinking about that when he said, my heart melts like wax. In 2 Samuel 13, David's daughter, Tamar, is raped by her own brother, Amnon. Imagine that. And when Tamar's other brother, Absalom, finds out, he kills his brother, Amnon. So here's David. His daughter has been raped by his son. His other son has killed that son. It's just one thing upon another. In 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 18, we learn that later on, David's son Absalom attempted a coup against David, only to be killed in battle against his own father. If that's not enough, in 1 Samuel 18 through 30, we know the story. David, who is promised to be king, 
is forced to live in a cave instead of a castle because a man that he looked up to and respected, the father of his good friend Jonathan, King Saul, was hell-bent to kill David. True to the curse of Genesis 3, life under the sun is hard. And maybe with the exception of Job and our Savior, while he was here with us in this world, few understood that like David. And of course, you have your own experiences. We have our own experiences of hardship in this life under the sun. Some, some here have lost children or have children who are lost. Some here, and I, Don and I are among this group, have lost grandkids or have grandkids who are lost. Some of you live with chronic illness and pain. The moment the alarm clock goes off, you're greeted by pain piercing through your body. And you don't know. You don't know if you'll be able to accomplish the things you hope to accomplish that day. Some of you long to be married. Hang in there. Some of you are lamenting your marriage. Hang in there. Some of you are experiencing anemic finances or stalled careers. Some of you are experiencing difficult relational conflict. Some of you experience you're derided in the classroom. You're mocked in the workplace for your faith. Life is hard. Lord, have mercy on us and come quickly. But amid life's hardships, God reveals his goodness. Just like he did for David. I want you to see where David goes. He is lamenting life. But notice where he goes. Verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. This is our second point. Life is hard, but God is good. We love to identify with David in his lament, and we should. But I would humbly submit to you that too often we justify our struggles with God and we try to whitewash our sinful attitudes toward God by saying, well, but look at David. He lamented his life. He cried out, Lord, why have you left me? 
But wearing his sleeve, there's something we need to understand about David. Wearing his feelings on his sleeve is not his legacy. His legacy is no matter how hard life was, he always looked up. (laughs) He always looked up. We always find David where we find him in verse 3. The most despairing words a human being can utter. Why, God, have you forsaken me? And yet, (laughs) to use David's own word, and yet, God, you are holy. This is what makes our laments God glorifying is when they lead us to exalt God in Christ over ourselves. And that's what we see here in Psalm 22. The word yet there in verse 3, it represents this interruption in David's focus. You, you, You see that. His Lament, the the most lamenting words he can utter are are, are meant by yet, this three-letter word that represents this shift. David has suddenly shifted from the grief of his salvation to the, the grief of his situation to the God of his salvation. I have this situation going on in my life, yet this I know to be true about God. He is holy. And that reality of God, that, 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 that unchanging eternal truth about the nature of God, it, it, it shapes David. It, it stops him dead in his tracks. It causes him to think about how, what he's going to say here. It causes him to think about how he's going to respond to what is going on in his life. And I would just submit, don't we need to be reminded of that? We live Coram Deo before the face of God, and He is a holy God. He sees us, He knows our hearts and our ways. Let the holiness of God shape you right now as it did David. But notice what what he says at the end of verse 3. He says, God is holy, yet God is holy. Then he says, he is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Translation, God is worthy to be praised in good times and in bad times. That's what David is saying here. Oh, Lord, why have you forsaken me? You seem so far off. Yet... You are holy and worthy to be praised. Let me just stop and ask you this question. Where where does a yet need to interrupt your life? Where, Where do you need a yet inserted into your life? Where do you need an interruption in your life? focus. And before you answer that, look at the substance of David's yet. The first thing he tells us is that God is faithful. Notice verse 4. 
in, our, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trust and were not put to shame. You see what David says here? There's a repetition in you, to you, in you. David, in his grief, he stops himself. He takes his thoughts captive to remember his God. He has referred to God as my God three times in verses one through two, that he is faithful. He is faithful. David preaches to himself in his trials that in his ancestors' trials, they looked to God. They trusted God. We don't have time to go through all from Adam and on all that David's ancestors went through. But one thing David says is, oh, but they looked to you. They didn't hide their feelings. They cried out to you, and you heard them, and you delivered them, and their trust was not in vain. David says they were not put to shame. In other words, God did not disappoint them. Listen, in our trials, in our hardships, in our struggles, there are so many things that we can look to for hope and for help. But I submit to you, no matter how well they may seem to be helping you in the moment, they will ultimately put you to shame. They will ultimately disappoint you. Only God never disappoints. I love what John Calvin says here. He says, David gathers together the example of all past ages in order thereby to encourage, strengthen, and effectually persuade himself that as God had never cast off any of his chosen people, that he, that is David himself, would be one of the number of those for whom deliverance is securely laid up for him in the hand of God. God is faithful. Even when you feel though he is nowhere to be found. His faithfulness is an expression of his holiness. But he doesn't stop there. He's, next he says God is able to save. God is faithful and God is able to save. Notice verse 9, he says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. This second yet reveals God's powerful and personal providence in God's life. And in his own words, he understands since his very conception. Since his very conception. He says, Lord, you brought me into this world. God alone gives, creates life. So David realizes and acknowledges that from the beginning of his existence, he has been dependent on God, and God's help has always been sufficient. I, I love at the end of verse 11, verse 11, be not far from me for troubles here, and there is none to help. David understands something. Only God is able. My help, I look around, and there, was no, there is none to help. God 
you are able. As he considers his own life, look at verse 19, because we, we see David's confidence in the Lord now begin to soar above his situation. Look, look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then he says this, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That word rescued can also be translated, if you depend on your translation, it may say answered. You have answered me. You have rescued me. Whether it's rescued or answered, don't miss the point. It's in the past tense. (laughs) Do you see that? It's in the past tense. David's confidence is such that even as he cries out to the Lord, oh Lord, do not be far off. Help me. He knows the faithfulness of his God. He knows the ability of his God. And so he begins to speak as if God has already helped. His cry for the Lord's nearness and rescue from his enemies, it's not a shot in the dark. It's not, let's see what sticks, just throw it all up against the wall. It's a confident declaration of God's ability to save him. So we see David in the midst of his lament. He is is preaching the goodness of his God to himself. He says, you are faithful. You are able to save. And then he says, you are worthy of praise. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is the the one that in verse 1 we began with. Where are you? (laughs) Why why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? And now, with his eyes lifted to the heavens, no doubt, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Man, I feel forsaken, but you are holy you are faithful, you are able, and I will praise you. Even in the midst, even amid my suffering, you are worthy, you are holy. And my lips, no matter how my body feels, no matter how fragile my psyche is, I I will praise you. Verse 23, you you who fear the Lord, praise him. David's getting, he's telling us now, join me. Listen, life is hard for you, I know, trust me, I know. Join me though, praise him. He is good, and his goodness is greater than your hardships. What a shift. Problems over? No. No. Enemies gone? No, they're still circling. Suffering ceased? 
No, he, he, he's still. His bones, his heart is melted like wax. Eyes fixed on the Lord? Yes. And that changes everything. Though nothing here seems changed, when we look up here, that changes everything. David doesn't ignore his feelings. They are real. But he does not allow them to rule him. He does not allow his situation to shape or define him. He knows where the battle begins. In the mind, Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Preach truth to yourself. As the writer of Philippians said, Paul himself, think on these things. What things? He says, things that are worthy of praise. And none is more worthy of praise than God and Christ. And so David knows this. And so he uses the language from, for, in a sense, to use the language from Psalm 8. He becomes more mindful of his God. He becomes more mindful of his faithfulness and his sovereignty than his circumstance. And that leads him to break out in worship even in the midst of his woe. And actually notice David's worship transcends his momentary hardship in a way that might be a bit surprising. Um, he acknowledges the greater purposes of God. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and, and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. We sung about this this morning. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And, and the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall all shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. Those that come after David, they shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. That's you and me, among others. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Do you see what, what happens here? There's this shift even to a forward-looking praise. David is worshiping God. He's not merely looking for this immediate personal solution. His praise is for the greater cause of God's purposes. He sees the glory of God in building his kingdom. God is redeeming his people. David has a grasp to some degree that history is moving toward this eternal feast, and he can see it. Just as Hebrews 11 said, the Old Testament saints, they saw something. David sees it. He knows this is not about him. He knows that he is part of something that God has decided to do. So his hardships become small. And God and his purposes become big. Now, take a moment 
and consider what's hard in your life today. Does, be honest, does David's perspective seem ridiculous, unreasonable, and perhaps impossible as you consider your own hardship? If your answer is yes, with all humility and due respect, you're wrong. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's possible for your lament to turn to praise. It's possible. Anything in Christ is possible. Go read John 15. And Psalm 22 while it's like a mirror to our hearts, it, it meets us right where we are living. The emotions and the feelings and the despairs and the anxieties and the discouragement. It's like, David, you're reading my mail. But it's really not about David. It's about Christ. David's lament points us to the Lord. It wasn't David's hands and feet that were pierced. It was our Savior's who knew Psalm 22 as his own. You, 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 you know how to find Christ on every page of the scriptures. So you already know this, but I'm going to remind you. Psalm 22, Christ's crucifixion is vivid in Psalm 22. In fact, turn to Matthew 27. I want to show you something. Matthew 27. Verse 35, here's the scene. Jesus' feet and hands, not David's, but Jesus' feet and hands have already been pierced with spikes. The nerves are on fire, and Jesus hangs suspended between heaven and earth. And verse 35 says this, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Sound familiar? That's Psalm 22, 18. Then they sat down and kept watch over him, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And notice verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, just like David felt. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So that so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. David said, People mocked me and derided me, and they said, Let him save himself. And then in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, covered in blood, cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? These words that were David's a thousand years earlier recorded for us in Psalm 22 really belonged to Jesus. You'll notice in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And the Gospel of John says the words he uttered were those three precious words. It is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. Matthew 27. And the other three accounts of the crucifixion that go on to talk about a resurrection and in ascension they are this moment was is the goodness of God to you in the midst of a hard life you you, you can't declare life is hard but God is good until you go to the cross. Because every average Joe out there can say, life is hard, but God is good because, or I mean, but life is hard, but God is good because he's some theoretical abstract idea that keeps me getting up in the morning. <laughs> the demons knew that God is good. And James said, so What? How does God reveal his infinite goodness to us? Where is his holiness most revealed for us? Is it not when justice and mercy met in a man named Jesus hanging and dying on a cross for our sins? This is what Psalm 22 ultimately teaches. Life is hard, but God is good and Jesus is the proof. Jesus is the proof, and he is the highest expression of God's goodness 
to us. He, it is at the cross where he took care of your greatest need at Calvary. And by the way, whatever it is, hardship comes to mind right now. Having that hardship resolved, having having a sense of, uh, 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 of understanding, having the confusion removed, that is not the ultimate solution. That is not your greatest need that needs to be met. Your greatest need that needs to be met is that like me and like David, you are a sinner in need of grace. And when Christ hung there and cried out with his own words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you could be accepted, so that you could have forgiveness and righteousness and salvation. I love what John Bloom says. He says, at the crux of history, there was a moment when God was forsaken and he was forsaken for you and me. God became the object of God's wrath to remove our curse that we might become the object of God's eternal mercy. Listen, this is why we can say, even in the hardest trial, I'm doing better than I deserve. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve not to exist. I deserve to be judged immediately. Yet, I have full pardon in Christ. Christ was truly forsaken so that I could be eternally accepted. And that spiritual reality gives perspective on our hardships. Oh my. Pastors, I need to apply the gift of editing on the fly. (laughs) I'm going to do my best. Listen, isn't it true that life in this world seems so big? And whatever your hardship is, it might as well be eternal in your mind. And it's easy to get confused. It's easy to lose sight that like David in his prey said, oh, this is so much bigger than me. You, you've, seen, you've seen the chart, right? The dot and then the line, right? And the line just keeps going and going. It keeps going through this wall and through the next wall and through the next wall. The line never ends. And your life, in one sense, is the dot. And within that little dot, there's a bunch of little other dots, hardships and triumphs. But when we step back like David did to see the holiness and greatness and sovereignty of God and to see the the plan that he has been bringing about to make creation right, to make his people right with him, suddenly, suddenly, that perspective, that eternal perspective zooms right in on these little dots that fill up the little dot of me. And suddenly it's not so big. 
that relational conflict isn't so big. Oh, you want to resolve it for the glory of God and the testimony of his church. But the world's not ending. You have a faithful God who is able and who will, who has and who is and who will save you to that day when you will spend eternity. This is what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Chris Hillman belted out this morning on the gospel bluegrass station. <laughs> I won't be watching TV because I'll have Jesus in front of me. Heaven is my home. Heaven is your home. The hardships of this life are but a vapor and light of heaven. It doesn't make your hardships insignificant. It doesn't make your hardships irrelevant. It doesn't make them easy. But it puts them in perspective. And when you look to your God who is faithful and good, in Christ Jesus toward you, guess what? Like David, in the midst of his lament, you too can sing his praises. You too can share his glory with those around you. You too can tell those around you like David did, come join me. <laughs> come sing his praises with me. I know life is hard. God's in control and God is good. Jesus is the proof. And heaven will be your reward.